What is up, Restoration family? Welcome to week five of a six-week series called Erasing God, and uh, excited to dive into this one this week. Landon Myers is going to bring the word. Um, if this is your first time, welcome. Glad you're able to join us. My name is Nate Huss. I'm one of the team members here at Restoration Church, and uh, yeah, let's jump into week five of Erasing God. Well, good morning. My name is Landon, and I'm thankful to be one of the team members here, a slightly less energetic team member, so, uh, and Ron's not here to, like, kind of be the same as me, so it's good to be with you. Uh, We're going to be in Genesis chapter 16, if you have your Bible. Uh, We're in week four of a five-week series called Erasing God, and the whole idea here is not that we're deconstructing who God is and we no longer believe in Him, but what we're actually doing is addressing the reality that for each of us, we have a unique concept of who God is. We can have our own interpretation of the scriptures, we have our own experiences in our personal lives, uh, interpretations, different things that form what we think is true about who God is. Now, I'm not saying that God God is different for different people, but our understanding of him based on what's going on in our lives can be unique. And so the whole concept in this series is honestly acknowledging the reality that there is likely things that we personally believe to be true about God and how we're constructing and forming who God is, our concept of him in our minds that need to be erased and then replaced with the truth of who God actually is. Throughout the series, we've talked about uh, what your family looked like growing up, our cultural values around us, and then your experiences form and influence what you think when you think uh, about who God is. And so that's what we're going to talk about this morning. And I feel like I need to set the stage just uh, a little bit because this morning's going to be different. We're going to cover almost 13 chapters of the scriptures. Don't worry, I'm not going to read all of it. But we're going to look at kind of some spotlights throughout uh, Genesis 12 through 25 to see the bigger picture. In the uh, 12th century, there was this addition to the scriptures. And the addition was chapters and verses. They weren't a part of the original manuscripts of uh, the Bible. And so that was a great tool because now we have things like John chapter 3, verse 16, which is helpful. We can say, here's where to go in your Bible, and we can talk about it easier or memorize verses. (laughs) Um, But in life, there's always unintended consequences. I like to think of the unintended consequences of things. And one of the unintended consequences of chapters and verses in the scriptures is that it causes us to focus in and kind of spotlight on one small section, maybe even one small sentence or verse. And that that can be really good to meditate on and memorize. But if that's all we do, we're actually missing a significant portion of the intent of the scriptures. If I receive a letter from my wife, I don't like read the, the header, Dear Landon, and go, I wonder what she meant when she said, Dear Landon. And then read the next sentence and go, you know what? I think I'm going to meditate on that for like a week. And go, oh, I wonder what she meant by that. And then I spend a year meditating on this letter before actually reading the whole thing and going, oh, I got to the end. That's what she did mean. But the reality is almost the entire New Testament is letters written from somebody to a church, yet we often just 
do little bits and pieces. In the first half of the scriptures, the Old Testament, the majority of it, or a good portion at least, is what we'd call historical narrative. It's the true story of how the world we live in came to be to today. And it's the same thing. You don't read U.S. history by going, what happened in one tiny little segment? I'll read a sentence of it and think about what that means. And then talk to my friends about what that meant. And then get in a group and in a circle and we'll talk about that sentence. Then we'll do it again next week. Like, that doesn't make sense. You read the whole picture. And it's the same when it comes to the scriptures. There's immense value in actually reading large chunks of scripture, not understanding it all, but seeing the big picture. Because when we step back and watch what the scriptures tell us has happened by God over an extended period of time, we get to know who he is and what he's like. One of the most significant mistakes we make as we follow Jesus is we think of him more as a list of attributes and a savior that's distant, not a person that is present with us. And so my hope this morning is as we look at these uh, sets of, of chapters and the scriptures in Genesis, we'll see who God is consistently over time with multiple people. We'll see how some of those people uh, over time formed a concept of God that wasn't true, that they came to feel or believe was true and what they needed to erase and then replace that with. So we'll look at four uh, examples specifically. We'll start in Genesis chapter 16, verses 7 and 8. It says this, the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. He said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She replied, I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai. I feel like this is like the intro into a new TV show or something, and they're like, let's get you hooked. What, what's happening in this moment? And so here's the context. Uh, God has made a promise to a man named Abraham, a covenant. He's told Abraham that he will uh, have a son, and that son will lead to having a large family, and this family will go out and bless all of the nations on the earth. And Abraham at this point does not have any children. God says, follow me, and I'm going to bless you. And as time goes on, Abram and his wife Sarai are unable to conceive a child, and so uh, Sarai decided to do what was customary in their culture, which was to give one of her servants, her slaves, to Abram to have him sleep with her so that she would have a child, and then she would adopt that boy from her servant, and in that way, a family would grow since she was not able to conceive herself. This was Sarai's plan. She executed that plan, and her slave, Hagar, uh, became pregnant. And when her plan became a reality, Sarai was angry. She was jealous. She was abusive towards this woman who she made do this thing. And so that's where we pick up in verses uh, 9 and 10. We'll continue. The angel of the Lord said to Hagar, you must go back to your mistress and submit to her mistreatment. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will greatly, hear those two words. They're really important. We're going to hear it a lot today. I will. God says, I will. That's going to be really important in our time this morning. God says, I will greatly multiply your offspring, and they will be too many to count. Then the angel of the Lord said to her, you have conceived and will have a son. Your name, or you will name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard your cry of affliction. Note that as well. The Lord hears. If you're here this morning and you're wondering if God hears, he does. doesn't mean he's going to answer when you want him to or how you want him to, but the Lord hears. Uh, then 
God continues to tell this woman what every woman wants to hear when she finds out she's going to have a child. She says, or God says to her, this man will be like a wild donkey. His hands will be against everyone, and everyone's hand will be against him. He will live at odds with all his brothers. So she called the Lord who spoke to her, the God who sees. For she said, in this place, have I actually seen the one who sees me? That is why she named the spring a well of the living one who sees me. And she goes on uh, to have Ishmael. So note this really quickly. At this point in time, there's an idea in Hagar's mind about who God is. She articulates some of that. He is a God who sees He's a God who hears, and he's a God who is with her and for her when no one else is. This is who she understands God to be in this moment. That's good. That's true. Now we're going to fast forward 14 years to Genesis chapter 21, verse 8. Genesis chapter 21, verse 8. Spoiler alert. Eventually, Sarai is able to have her own son. And so this life circumstance, this event is going to change a whole lot of things for Hagar and her perspective. Uh, Genesis 21, verse 8. The child grew and was weaned, and Abraham held a great feast on the day Isaac was weaned. Everyone is happy and excited except for Hagar. But Sarah saw the son mocking, the one Hagar the Egyptian had born to Abraham. So she said to Abraham, drive out this slave with her son, for the son of this slave will not be a co-heir with my son Isaac. All of a sudden, things are about to dramatically and drastically change for the worse for Hagar and Ishmael. Now, this was a very difficult thing for Abraham because of his son. Verse 12, but God said to Abraham, do not be concerned about the boy and your slave. Whatever Sarah says to you, listen to her, because your offspring will be traced through Isaac. But I will also make a nation of the slave's son, because he is your offspring. Early in the morning, Abraham got up, took bread and a water skin, put them on Hagar's shoulders, and sent her and the boy away. She left and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she left the boy under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down nearby, about a bowshot away, for she said, I can't wait, or I can't bear to watch the boy die. So as she sat nearby, she wept loudly. So 14 plus years have passed. At this point, Hagar does not have a whole lot of cares left in life. She doesn't have a whole lot left to live for, things she's pursuing. But one thing does matter to her. She's pursuing one last thing. She puts her boy, who's probably 15, 16 years old, something of that variety, maybe a little bit older at this point, under a bush where maybe there's just a tiny bit of shade. It's hot in the desert, and they have no water, and he's going to die. She's accepted that as her and his reality. The only thing she has left to pursue is that she does not want to watch or hear her son breathe his last. And so she distances herself. She weeps loudly. At this point, what do you think she thinks of who God is? Is he still the God who sees? In her mind, is he still the God who hears and knows and loves and is there? I don't think so. She's given up. In fact, she's no longer believing that he'll be faithful to his promise. She gives up, weeps loudly, walks away. Her concept, based on life circumstances, has changed who she believes God to be in this moment. 
continue to read, though. Verse 17, God heard the voice of the boy, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what's wrong, Hagar? Don't be afraid, for God has heard the voice of the boy from the place where he is. Is that what you'd expect God to say? In your own life, if you've come to a place where you're struggling to have faith, maybe you have no faith left, no more cares, you don't understand what God's doing. In fact, you've kind of just given up on him. What do you think the first thing God would say to you is? I think often what what I think is that God's going to be a little bit angry with me, or he's going to have an expectation that my faith would be better. Oftentimes, what we do is think we need to make up for some bad we've done or do some good before we come before him. But that's not what the, the loving father does or says. He comes to her and says, what's wrong? And then he says, do not be afraid. That's the posture of the father. Verse 18, he says, get up, help the boy up and support him. For I will, there's those two words again, I will, not you will, I will make him a great nation. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. So she went and filled the water skin and gave the boy a drink. God was with the boy and he grew. He settled in the wilderness and became an archer. He settled in the wilderness of Paran and his mother got a wife for him from the land of Egypt. Here's the erasing and replacing dynamic here. What needed to be erased was Hagar's feeling and belief that God forgets and or that God makes promises that he can't or will not keep. What it needed to be replaced with is the truth that God will not forget his promises, and God is our provider, but his timing and his ways are not our timing or our ways, or at least our preferred timing or our preferred ways. For, for a moment, think about your life and if somebody has ever made a significant promise to you, especially someone close to you, a, a big type of promise. Maybe it's a, a business partner. Maybe it's a, a family member, loved one. Maybe it's a father figure or, or somebody. Process that for a moment, especially if that somebody broke a really important promise. Think about a time in life that an important promise was broken or maybe where you broke a promise. And then take a second and uncomfortably feel that. That's not fun, but do it. Feel it. A promise that has been broken by you or by someone else that mattered a lot. And then know this. That feeling will never be a feeling that you have when it comes to a promise that God has made may not be in our moment and in our timing or our preferred methodology, but you will never have that feeling and that will never become the truth when it comes to a promise that the Father has made because he is always faithful. Continue to, to see who God is. Turn to backwards to Genesis chapter 18 and we're going to look at another example of God's faithfulness. Genesis 18 uh, will begin in Verse uh, 22, God has already made his promise, his covenant with Abraham. He just reaffirmed it with Abraham and actually shared a meal with Abraham and then uh, kind of brought Abraham into this, this conversation. God let him know that there was this city called Sodom, that it was a terrible place and awful things were happening again and again. 
rape, abuse, just horrendous sexuality. It was ugly, and it was only getting worse. And so God heard the cries of the people that were being abused and oppressed in this city. And God told Abraham, I'm going there to see if I need to destroy the entire city because the outcry is great in my ears. And from that, we can hear this again. God hears. Pick up in verse 22. The men who were actually angels turned from there and went towards Sodom, while Abraham remained standing before the Lord. I love these next five words. I was really surprised by them uh, this morning. Abraham stepped forward and said, pause for a second. Abraham didn't step backwards to talk to God. Abraham didn't like turn around and whisper something to God because he wasn't sure if he was allowed to have this conversation. Abraham didn't say, hey, God, can I ask something? He confidently stepped forward and addressed God. God actually invites us, instructs us, commands us to approach the throne of grace with confidence. That's how he wants us to approach him. And guess what? In this moment, what Abraham is about to do is question God, whether or not he's capable, whether or not he's good, whether or not God has what it takes. Verse 23, Abraham stepped forward and said, will you really sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away instead of sparing the place for the sake of 50 righteous people who are in it? Then he decides to tell God what God can and cannot do. You could not possibly do such a thing to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. You could not possibly do that. Won't the judge of all the earth do what is just? Abraham is not confident and God's ability to know what is best in that moment. Abraham does not trust that God knows what he's doing. And so Abraham asks, if there's 50 people there that are righteous, will you still destroy it? And God says no. And then Abraham's still not too sure about this God. And so he goes, God, what if there's 45? God says, no, I won't destroy it. And Abraham comes again and says, what if there's 40? God says, no, I won't destroy it. If I'm God at this point, I'm like, Abraham, stop talking. I'm God. Let's be done with this. But that's not what the father does. He says, what if there's 30? And then what if there's 20? And then what if there's 10? And each time God allows him to ask his question about his character. God allows Abraham to question God. He steps forward to question God. And God not only is okay with it, we talked about this recently, but he invites it. And he answers. We're going to fast forward again uh, to Genesis chapter 19, verses 12 through 16. God looks at Sodom. He judges it and says, no, it's nothing but evil. It needs to be destroyed or only more and more people are going to be harmed. So Genesis chapter 19, verse 12. Then the angel said to Lot, Lot is Abraham's nephew who's actually went to live in Sodom. The angels say to him, do you have anyone else here, a son-in-law, your sons and daughters, or anyone else in the city who belongs to you? Get them out of this place, for we are about to destroy this place because the outcry against its people is so great before the Lord that the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law who were going to marry his daughters. Get up, he said, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But his sons-in-law thought that he was joking. Verse 15. At daybreak, the angels urged Lot on, get up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you will be swept away in the punishment of the city. But Lot hesitated. Now, now hear this. Because 
of the Lord's compassion for him. The men grabbed his hand, his wife's hand, and the hands of his two daughters. Then they brought him out and left him outside the city. Here's where when I read the scriptures, I like to actually imagine what this looked like. We have to speculate a little bit. I don't know. But as I speculate, I don't see these angels grabbing Lot's hand like this kind of a thing and going, let's skip along like we're on the beach and it's just going to be fun. I don't think that's what happened. What I envision is something more like if one of my kids is not listening and doing what they're supposed to, or they're in harm's way, I grab them, and it might even be by the wrist, and it's a pretty hard, uncomfortable pull. And if they continue to not listen, their feet don't come with me. They just kind of drag along. (laughs) Here's what's happening here. It's not really comfortable. A lot of us actually don't like what happens here when we think about who God is. God is taking these people somewhere they do not want to go against their will. I said that correctly. God is taking these people somewhere they do not want to go against their will. Why? Because he loves them and he knows what's best for them more than they know what's best for him. His ways are not their ways. His timing is not their timing, and thank God, or they would be dead. We might not be comfortable. We like to be comfortable here with how Jesus leads us sometimes, but we can trust that it's always good. There's this incredible, perfect, flawless even, blending and mixture of compassion and mercy and the execution of justice. And nowhere in our land or any place on this globe or throughout the course of history can a judge be trusted to arbitrate perfectly like our God. My, uh, my wife, Chelsea, is a nurse, and she has this habit that I don't really like. At night, we'll, we'll, we'll be in bed, and she'll be on her phone, and she'll start watching these nursing videos. They're disgusting. Thank God I can't smell what's happening in the video. <laughs> There's these surgeries and operations and infections. And I'm like, you like this? I'm confused. And so recently, actually this week, she was watching a video talking about a a nurse. I want to say in Texas, but I try to like not listen too much. Go Texas. There you go. Um, And so she's listening to this account. And this nurse made a mistake in her calculation when she was administering medicine. And it ended up killing the patient. That, that nurse is now being criminally charged and probably facing 12 plus years in prison. And it's the first time it's happened to this degree and in this way. And so what I often don't think about uh, when it comes to my wife's job is how important math is and this calculation and this mixture. And you cannot afford to make a mistake. It's a matter of life and death. Yes, there's malpractice insurance, but that doesn't bring somebody back to life. And it's kind of similar or that kind of provided a picture for me of what God is like. I love this word. Sometimes we say God is perfect and I think it becomes kind of mundane and rote. We go, yeah, God's perfect. God's perfect. Today I like this. God is flawless. He doesn't make a a mistake ever. His, His administering of mercy and justice is always perfect, never flawed. He doesn't make a mistake. Here's the erase and replace dynamic uh, for this component. Abraham felt like, believed, or simply questioned. And I want to pause there for a second. I don't know if he just had a feeling. 
I don't know if Abraham actually believed that God didn't know what he was doing or if he was just questioning. I'm not sure. But either way, Abraham felt like, believed, or simply questioned if God was incapable of balancing mercy and carrying out justice. That needed to be erased and replaced with this. The truth that Jesus never has and never will error in providing the perfect blend of mercy with the perfect execution of justice. We have a flawless God. Third example, let's move backwards to chapter 18, verse 9. The the context here, as we rewind once again, it's a little disorienting, is that Sarai has not yet been able to conceive. Uh, Abraham and her do not have a child. And so we pick up chapter 18, verse 9. God says to, to Abram, where is your wife, Sarah? There in the tent, Abram answered. The Lord said, here we go, here's these words again. I will certainly, the Lord said, I will certainly come back to you in about a year's time, and your wife Sarah will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance of the tent behind him. Abraham and Sarah were old and getting on in years. Sarah had passed the age of childbearing, so she laughed to herself. And this is a mocking type of laugh, like, sure, God, God doesn't understand. God can't do this. God doesn't know what he's talking about. This mocking laugh. She says, after I've become shriveled up and my Lord is old, will I have delight? But the Lord asked Abraham, why did Sarah laugh, saying, can I really have a baby when I'm old? Is anything impossible for the Lord? At the appointed time, here we go again, I will come back to you, and in about a year, she will have a son. Verse 15, Sarah denied it. Then she lies. I did not laugh, she said. Because she was afraid. Now, hold on. This is actually important. In her construction of who God is, in her mind, based on her culture, their values, familial upbringing, and her life experiences, at this point in time, the God that she had created in her mind was a God who it was better to lie to than to be honest with. She's afraid, so she lies. And then I love his response. No, you did laugh. Very simply. (laughs) Fast forward again now to Genesis uh, chapter 21, verses 1 through 7. The Lord came to Sarah, many, or uh, that year has passed. The Lord came to Sarah as he had said. That's a really good sentence. As he had said. The Lord came to Sarah as he had said. And in case we're kind of slow, next. And the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Verse 2, Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abram in his old age. At the appointed time, God had told him. Abraham named his son, who was born to him, the one Sarah bore to him, Isaac. When his son Isaac was eight days old, Abraham circumcised him as God had commanded him. Side note, Isaac means laughter, which is interesting. Verse 5, Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Verse 6, here's that theme again. Sarah said, God has made me laugh, and everyone who hears will laugh with me. That's a different type of laughter. This is no longer the mocking type of laughter. This is this deep breath of relief laughter that she realizes she was wrong about who God was. She doesn't have to pretend. She doesn't have to lie, and he is faithful. God has made me laugh, and everyone who hears will laugh with me. She also said, who would have told Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne a son for him in his old age. For Sarai, Sarah, 
the erase and replace dynamic looks like this. What needed erasing was the feeling or belief that God had the same limits she did. It is so natural and easy for us because we have many limitations, emotional and relational limitations, physical limitations, spatial, time, financial, gifting. We're limited in a lot of ways. And what we often do is place those limits on God as we construct our image of who he is. What that needs to be replaced with after we erase it is the truth that Jesus has no limits. His love never ends. He is king, and nothing can stand against his power and will. What often causes us to place our limits on him is when we're not okay with his timing and we're not okay with his way. There's a theme. I love what uh, Martin Luther King Jr. says uh, about this concept. He says we must accept finite disappointment. It's a reality in life. But we must never lose infinite hope because of who God is. Finite is defined like this, the condition or state of being finite, the condition of being subject to limitations. We are subject to those limitations, but Jesus is not. Our uh, fourth and final example, one more time, we'll turn backwards to Genesis chapter 17, verses 1 and 2. God's established this covenant, this promise with Abraham, uh, but he's reframing it one more time for him. We read this. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him saying, I am God Almighty. Live in my presence and be blameless. I will establish my covenant. Did you hear that? I will establish my covenant between me and you. And one more time. And I will multiply you greatly. Depending on the translation, it either says, live in my presence or walk before me. The only thing that God says we need to do is simply be with him. There's this image of the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve walked in the garden in the cool of day with God. And what he's saying is, walk before me, be with me in my presence because I'm a person, not a stat sheet that happens to save you and give you a ticket to heaven. Our God is a person with a presence we're called to be with. That's the only command. Here's what's interesting. Here's why uh, how we interpret the scriptures is so important. I think in our American culture, we read something unique here. We read, live in my presence and be blameless. And what we read are two commands. Live in my presence, one. Second command, be blameless. And it is on you to live in his presence, and it is on you to be blameless. But that is not what the grammatical structure here in Hebrew sets up. It's live in my presence, and as a result, you will be blameless. It's walk before God, just be with him, and what that will do in your life is render you blameless because he's good, and he's faithful, and he's holy, and he will carry us, not because you're capable. I love the, the list of I wills here. Here's some of them. God says, I will establish my covenant between me and you. I will multiply you greatly. I will make you the father of many nations. I will make you extremely fruitful and will make nations and kings come from you. I will keep my covenant between me and you. I will give the land where you are residing. 
I will be their God, his family. I will bless her, Hagar. I will confirm my covenant with Isaac, his son. I have heard you. I will certainly bless your other son. I will make him fruitful. I will multiply him greatly. And there's a ton of other I wills before and a ton of other I wills after. The the idea here is that the I wills belong to God. Here's the erase and replace dynamic. The feeling or belief that what I will or what I won't do matters most needs to be erased. When you think about your relationship to God and how you follow Jesus, quote unquote, if what you think about is what you will or what you will not do, as the center point, the foundation of your relationship with God, that has to be erased because that's not what it's about. It's about what he will do and what he won't do. What it needs to be replaced with is the truth that the I wills belong to God. I was talking to somebody after one of the other two uh, gatherings earlier this morning. We were talking about how hard it is to break that habit. Because right out of the gate, right when we're born, in our culture, we're trained. The only thing keeping you from your goals is you. So actually, there's this counter-cultural, antithetical lie to the gospel built in to a lot of our American consumerism and dream that makes it about us. Now, working hard, pursuing goals, having vision, that's all great. That's good. That's godly. But when the I wills rest in our hands, there's a massive injustice that's done. Because the reality is that my life and my family's and your life and your family's is way better off in God's hands than in our own. Last passage I want to read is in Genesis chapter 15, verse 9 through 21. And uh, verse 8, Abraham goes, God, how can I trust? He has trust issues with God like we all do at times. How can I trust that you'll fulfill this promise? How can I know that you'll actually be faithful? And in verse 9, God says to him, bring me a three-year-old cow, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. So Abraham brought all these to God. He split them down the middle. That means cut the animals in half and laid the pieces opposite each other, but he did not cut up the birds. Birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abraham drove them away. So here's what is happening because that sounds really weird and bloody, and it was. But this was the cultural custom of the day on how a covenant or a relational contract was formed. This wasn't unique to God. Two parties would bring together multiple animals, cut them in half, make a pathway filled with blood in between, and then what they would do is the symbolic ceremony. They would walk through the blood and step into it, and as they passed that, they would say, may it be so with either of us. May we be split. May our blood be shed if we do not hold true to this commitment, this covenant, this relational contract. So this was normal. Uh, God was actually communicating. This is a, a good little tidbit. God was communicating to Abraham in a way Abraham would understand. This is normal. What's not normal is what happens next. Verse 12. As the sun was setting, a deep sleep fell on Abram. That was not like. He just randomly got drowsy. God was doing this. And suddenly great terror and darkness descended on him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know this for certain. Your offspring will be foreigners in a land that does not belong to them. They will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. However, I will, there we go again, I will judge the nation they serve. And afterward, they will go out with many possessions. But you will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a ripe old 
age. And the fourth generation, they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Another reference to his perfect blending of compassion, mercy, and justice. Verse 17, here's where the non-customary part of this comes into play. When the sun had set and it was dark, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch appeared, held by God, and passed between the divided animals. Here's what's happening. God has made Abram drowsy, just enough that he's conscious, he's watching, but he is not walking. Normally, all parties involved walk through this bloody pathway. In this case, God says, no, you're going to watch me walk through. And what God is communicating is I and I alone am fully liable for what happens here. My blood and my blood alone will be shed, not yours. This is all about what I will do. It is not about what you will do. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying, I give this land to your offspring from the brook of Egypt to the Euphrates River, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Rephaim, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. I was uh, watching a, a TV show uh, this week about a guy named Adam Newman. He founded this company called WeWork. It's a billion-dollar collaborative space company. And in just the first episode of the show, you really get to know the character. And so quickly, you start to almost feel as if you know this guy named Adam who built this real company. You recognize he's really gifted as a visionary and a dreamer. He's got all kinds of ideas. You recognize that he will never take no for an answer from the girl he wants to date to the building he wants to own, whatever it is, he's going to figure out some insane way to make it happen. He's really good at rallying people and getting them to come alongside of his vision. You also learn he'll start to use people, and he'll do whatever it takes to make his vision and dream a reality. And he's kind of wild and sporadic and not totally trustworthy. And by the end of like 30 minutes, you go, oh, I kind of feel like I know him. And then as the scenes continue, he walks into a room with a certain group of people, and you can kind of predict what you think he might say or do. And then he walks into a different relational dynamic, and you can predict what he might do or say. That's the intent of this book. This book is not about what I'm supposed to do or not do. Does it have do's and do nots? Yes. Does it have some rules? Yes. And some good advice? Yes. But that's not the primary purpose of the scriptures. The primary purpose of the scriptures is for us to know God. If you're going through uh, something in life and you don't know what to do, you can't pull this out like an index and be like, what am I supposed to do in X situation? It doesn't work that way. But what we can do is we study who God is and read larger portions of the scriptures and go, oh, I know this God. I know what he's done in the past. I know how he's responded there. I know his style and timing and language and posture. And all of a sudden, I don't need a specific answer because my God is not a stat sheet. My God is a person that is with me. And this way, we can know what we need to erase that is untrue about who God is and what it needs to be replaced with. Let me close with this quote by Kent Hughes about this concept. He says this, follow believers. I am convinced that our view of God is everything. Some Christians, because they believe in the God of the scriptures, the God of Abraham, have a big God, but others have a small God. I believe that what you think about God is everything, because if you have a big God, then you have a God who through his son redeemed you to be his people. You have a God who will give you the land You have a God who will lead you through much suffering into the kingdom. You have a God who will do miracles in your life. You have a God to direct your life. 
You have a God who will answer prayers. You have a God to whom you must give all your love. The question is, is your God the God of Abraham, the God of this text, or is he a God of your own puny imagination or your sinful reductionism? If you have the God of the Bible, you will be able to stand tall even until the sin of our culture has reached its measure. We have a good, worthy, faithful, and loving God. Let's pray. Jesus, I come before you this morning and I thank you for who you are. God, I simply ask uh, not for circumstances to change, not for events to be different, not even for timing, but that you would simply allow us to know you more. By the power of your spirit, reveal yourself to us because wherever you are, you are faithful and it is good and we want to be near you. We need to be near you. Open our eyes to see your goodness and your love to know you more. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to continue to worship as uh, we do every week by taking communion. We often say that communion is the only proper response. This process of erasing God, not who God is, but the lies that sometimes we've bought into and we've believed, and that process of exchanging them for the truths of who he really is can be really challenging sometimes. And uh, that picture at the end of the teaching, this, um, when he talks about this covenant between, between Abraham and himself and how the animals are split, but God puts Abraham to sleep and he passes across, meaning that the covenant is only on him. Are we able to hold on to that? Are we able to remember that his promises ring true, that he sent his son to fulfill that covenant, to take our place? How incredible that we serve a God who loves us that madly, that deeply. Um, and so, um, yeah, I hope that you've been blessed. Next week, we're going to dive into a bunch of questions uh, kind of hinging on or surrounding this Erasing God topic and uh, finish up our six-week series. So hopefully you can join us. And uh, if this is your first time connecting with us, glad you were able to join us. Jump over to restorationaz.org um, to learn a little bit more. And until next time, remember, Jesus is the only one who is trustworthy always, no matter the moment. So press on as we continue to practice the way of Jesus. Jesus.